Hello and welcome back to The Pisky Trap, a series where we explore the folklore, history and legends from across Devon and Cornwall. This time we're back in Cornwall, and I think it's fair to say that no series exploring legends and folktales from Cornwall would be complete without looking at this particular place. It's become so iconic over the years, and it's appeared in so many books, it's been the subject of various documentaries and films and TV shows, largely thanks to a very famous 1936 novel penned by the Cornwall-based author Daphne du Maurier. I am, of course, talking about Jamaica Inn. Now, this was a particularly exciting one for me, because right at the very outset, when I first had the idea for this series, I was determined that I was going to do an episode dedicated to Jamaica Inn. I think because it's become such a landmark, and it's so popular with visitors from all over, and because there are so many stories attached to the place, I really wanted to find out more about the history of the inn and to delve a little bit further into some of the tales that are associated with it. Most of you will be well aware by now that I'm a fan of a good local ghost story, and Jamaica Inn has so many stories linked with it that it's, it's almost difficult to know where to start, to be honest. The inn has long had this reputation for being haunted, with countless stories and accounts by both visitors and members of staff, who've recorded a wide range of different paranormal phenomena, both inside and outside the inn. As ever, though, I wanted to get behind all the usual ghost stories that you can easily find in a quick Google search, and to see whether any of these romantic tales of smugglers and wreckers or the countless ghost stories have any foundation in truth, any actual link to the history of the building. When I initially started this project, I got in touch with the inn, and for a long time I heard nothing back. Then one day, quite recently, and out of the blue, I was put in touch with Corinne Bassant, who knows quite a lot about the history of Jamaica Inn and has also been involved with the paranormal events that they hold there. And she was able to offer quite a fascinating insight. And so you're going to hear extracts from that conversation a little bit later. Anyway, without any further waffle from me, here's our next episode, Jamaica Inn. As I'm recording this, Storm Eunice is currently blowing a gale outside. Blowing a hoolie, as my mum would say. And so I hope that that won't interfere too much. But it also seems apt to begin by talking about the weather. If you know Cornwall well, or even if you've just visited, and you've ever been through Bodmin Moor, you'll be well aware that it can be a very 
atmospheric place. It often seems to be wrapped in this blanket of mist and drizzle. Mizzle, as we call it. Jamaica Inn sits up on Bodmin Moor, pretty much slap bang between the towns of Launceston and Bodmin, in its own tiny hamlet called Bolventa. Nowadays, it sits quite close to the A30, but at one time it would have been pretty much plonked out there on its own. In fact, it was once described to me as being high up on its own little island, rising up out of the mists. Given its location and its isolation, it's not hard to see why the place has proven to be a source of inspiration for writers, with its supposed ties to Cornwall's dark past in smuggling and wrecking. And of course, tales of ghosts. In her novel, Set at the Inn, Daphne du Maurier describes her protagonist Mary Ellen's first encounter with the place, and I quote, She saw that the coach was topping the breast of a hill at a furious gallop, while on either side of the road was rough moorland, looming ink-black in the mist and rain. Ahead of her, on the crest and to the left, was some sort of a building, standing back from the road. She could see tall chimneys, murky dim in the darkness. There was no other house, no other cottage. If this was Jamaica, it stood alone in glory, four square to the winds. End quote. I can remember the first time I went to the inn. I was probably about 15 or 16 and although I'd heard of the place, and in fact I'd read the book just a few months before, I wasn't quite sure what to expect and how the reality was going to compare to the fiction. I seem to remember expecting that it was going to be taller than it was, but it was this longer, sort of L-shaped building around a large cobbled courtyard. But instantly it was very atmospheric, I think partly because I'd read the book, but also because... Well, because of its location, and just something about the building itself. It has a certain vibe to it. Back then, I wasn't as aware of its haunted reputation, but I did associate it with smuggling. Du Maurier must also have been aware of the tales of smuggling, and the inn's own website gives us an account of where she may have got her inspiration, and I quote, on a cold and eerie night in 1930, writer Daphne du Maurier arrived at Jamaica Inn, high on the windswept Bodmin Moor. The following day she went riding with a friend, but mist suddenly came down. They got lost, and it started to get dark. They saved themselves by dismounting and seeing if their horses would lead them back, which thankfully they did. Daphne stayed a few more nights to recover from the ordeal, and learned about the legendary history of Jamaica Inn, including the smuggling that had gone on there. This, the atmosphere of the hostelry, and the wild moor, inspired her to write her famous and compelling novel, Jamaica Inn. End quote. There are stories that, during her stay there, she met a local vicar, and it was he who supposedly told her many of the tales about smugglers and wreckers who were associated with the history of the inn, and I suspect he was possibly also the inspiration for the character of the Vicar of Altonen in the book. So, 
What about the stories of ghosts that supposedly haunt the inn? Well, there's quite a range of different stories and a range of different experiences that have been recorded. Ian Adicote, in his book Haunted Pubs of the Southwest, writes, and I quote, There are said to be several ghostly inhabitants who have been seen or heard at the inn. Footsteps have frequently been heard travelling along an upstairs corridor and into one of the accommodation rooms. This is the same bedroom where people have apparently seen a figure in a tricorn hat and a long overcoat standing by the door. End quote. And Nicola Sly, in her book A Ghostly Almanac of Devon and Cornwall, writes Conversations have been heard in the inn, although they have not been conducted in English. It is thought that the unseen speakers may be speaking in the ancient Cornish language. She goes on to say, Other people claim to have heard the sound of horses and carriages on the car park outside, and some believe they have heard the sound of laughing children. End quote. So there's a few different things in there, and one of the most common that keeps cropping up is this figure who's often described as being in a long coat or with a cloak and wearing a tricorn hat. And this figure's been seen wandering through different rooms and then disappearing. A classic example of this comes from Peter Underwood's book, Ghosts of Cornwall, in which he recounts the experience of a couple who were staying at the inn, and I quote, Shortly after falling asleep, they awoke to see a man standing by the bedroom door, the last room on the right in the upstairs corridor. He seemed to be wearing a three-cornered hat and a long, tight-waisted overcoat. As they watched, he slowly moved past the end of the bed and disappeared through a large wardrobe. Both witnesses said the room was icy cold while the figure was visible. Next morning... When they related their experience to the landlord, he did not seem in the least surprised and merely said, The old boy always goes through the wardrobe when he returns to that room. End quote. Outside the inn, there have been stories for a long time of a figure who's been seen sitting on the wall. He's described as being in old-fashioned clothing, and in some accounts, similar to that of an old sailor. He's apparently oblivious of any attempts to engage or communicate with him, and then disappears. Perhaps the most famous story associated with the inn, and one that I find particularly fascinating, surrounds a supposed murder that took place there many years ago. Peter Underwood gives an account of it. It is at this bar many years ago that a stranger stood drinking a pot of ale he was fated never to finish, for, upon being called outside, he put his half-empty tankard on the bar and disappeared into the night. In the morning his murdered body was found out on the moor, but the identity of his assailant has never been discovered. More than one landlord has heard ghostly footsteps tramping across the passage to the bar. Are they those of the murdered man returning to finish his drink? End quote. And many people have linked the story of this unfortunate man with that apparition seen outside sat on the wall. Could they perhaps be one and the same person? So that's some of the more well-documented phenomena attributed to the inn. 
but there are countless other stories and personal accounts out there. So there's quite a lot to unpick, really, from footsteps and voices to full apparitions both inside and outside the pub. But what do we know about the history of the inn? And can that give us some idea of perhaps where these stories came from? Well, it seems that the inn was first built in the middle of the 18th century. Some say around 1750. And it basically served as a coaching inn for anyone who was making the journey along the Turnpike Road across the moor. And it's perfectly situated as a stopping point if you're going between Launceston and Bobmin. We think that at some point in around 1778, the building was extended, and that's when it took on that L shape that you can see today. Although the cobbles that you can see out in the courtyard, those would originally have been gravel. Now, I wanted to know a little bit more about the original owners of the pub and the people who first built the inn, and a little bit more about its past. A little while back, I had a chat with Corinne Bessant, who knows quite a bit about the inn's history, and so I asked her about this. What's your understanding of how it came to be an inn in the first place? Is it sort of mid... Is it kind of when they built the Turnpike Road, it kind of sprung up along with that? Yes. Or was it, or was it already there? Did it pre-exist? No, we, we know thanks to um, a historian that Alan, the owner... Um, hired out because we all knew that it wasn't as early as 1750 we think it might be 1760 but we now know that a sea captain called John Broad uh, with a gentleman's handshake and I'll tell you the name an undocumented transaction between the late John Broad and James Scrowin Esquire of Maidwell in Northamptonshire in which John Broad commented to build a dwelling house on the site and hedge 20 acres of land adjoining, which should then be divided to several enclosures of land, rent of five shillings per annum. So he, I, I, I want to know, where did he get his money to do this? And how unusual to have a gentleman's handshake. What was the connection between those two parties? That's the mystery now. So we feel, when you look at the Jamaica Inn, it was only as wide as where the chimneys ended. So it was a small house. He also uh, tenanted a fine clay works called the Dry Works just over the hill. So it would be about 15 minutes walk away. And he called it, Bold Venture. And then in time, it became the hamlet of Bullventer. But we know in 1778, the landlords of the White Hart in Launceston, the White Hart in um, Bobmin, wanted to increase their trade. So uh, I think it was the landlord of the White Hart in Bobmin paid to make a road. And then to maintain it, they put the toll houses in. So suddenly you're getting trade going past. So 1778, the extension was put in, plus the end gables, plus the annex across the road. And it became a farm as well. Because by 1812, there's mention of farming. 
I was always under the that it was called the new in of the tithe appointments. But this historian has dismissed it now. But if you look on uh, Launceston then, um, the gentleman that runs it is adamant that is the history. But I'm more inclined to believe the bold venture. Because if you look at the old maps, there's nothing there. So if the hamlet was there before, it would, would be named. Same as the Jamaica Inn farmhouse opposite. When I spoke to the former owners before Alan Jackson bought it, she thought, though they lost the deed, she thought it went back to the 1500s because part of the original cottage still has the old Ford. But again, I can find no proof of that. So that's still open to investigation whether that was there before the Jamaica Inn. So it seems that this sea captain, John Broad, purchased the land to build the inn and the surrounding buildings as part of some kind of, well, simple handshake agreement, basically. Though it does make you wonder why it wasn't written down, and also what connection he had to this James Scrowen in the first place. Then we have this idea of the clay works and this bold venture becoming Bolventa, which to me makes sense. But what about the stories that the inn might have been involved in smuggling? If the first owner was a sea captain, he would have connections. We don't know yet if it was merchant, navy, or whatever type of boats that he um, was in charge of. And because of the height of the smuggling, it would make sense that smuggling went through there. The previous owner of the Jamaican farmhouse, the Sum, claims they found the entrance of a tunnel underneath their stairs, which he believes goes across the road to the Jamaica Inn. But without lardar or anything like that, we cannot prove it because it's solid granite. That's why there's no cellar underneath. But there are water tanks that was that was dug before because there was no water. They had to bring it up from further down and pipe it up to the inn. We, we know that. So it's interesting to hear this story about a possible tunnel that runs through to Jamaica Inn. And this is something that crops up quite a lot in stories from Cornwall in relation to smuggling. And this idea of either stashing or transporting contraband through different tunnel systems. I guess also because at one point smuggling was so prevalent, particularly in the 18th century, the inn's location on Bodmin Moor would have made it a perfect place for either picking up or dropping off cargo. Or if you're trying to transport contraband between the north and the south coasts, so it does make sense but trying to pin down the evidence for it is that little bit trickier. It seems that John Broad had two sons, named James and John. James went on to run Jamaica Inn, whilst John ran a pub called the Five Lanes outside Altonan. John Broad the Elder died in 1801, and unfortunately his sons died relatively young, so that by 1812 a woman named Elizabeth, the widow of the younger John Broad, took on Jamaica Inn. 
And this is when we get the first written agreement drawn up. In fact, this is the source that tells us about the original undocumented agreement. For now, at least, we don't know the exact nature of that relationship between John Broad and James Scrowan, Esquire of Northamptonshire. But given the fact that John had been a sea captain and the connections he might have had, personally, it does make you wonder, did smuggling play a part in this right from the outset? I want to move on now and explore the inn's haunted reputation in more detail. With so many stories out there, I wanted to get Corrine's take on some of the folklore and where it may have come from. How did these stories develop and how much have they evolved over time? We began by addressing this story of that supposed murder that's said to have taken place somewhere in or around the inn. There's a few kind of stories that are attributed to Jamaica Inn, and you kind of mentioned this thing that they've evolved over time. I wonder if it's worth kind of checking through some of the ones that have cropped up, but whether those have any kind of basis on anything or whether they are completely have been completely concocted over time. Well, the, the most famous one is, is Jack. And, you know, look, I'm so thankful I've got some of the early books um, because originally he was thought to be a sailor. And that, me, to me, me and myself and Colin, it makes more sense because a sailor passing through with a bag of coin is more likely if he's a stranger, if he's flashing his money around, um, getting drunk, is more likely to be lured out, side, murdered for the money. Now, we, we know that in 1911, um, it was put in Country Life magazine um, of a man sat on the wall. Now, it's not the same wall as we see now. Um, and dressed in old-fashioned clothing. Um, and locals tried to converse with him. He ignored them. And then I presume he disappeared though that is quite sketchy. And when Most Haunted came down, the fireplace in the snug, that's where Yvette Fielding said he was seen. Over the years, it's moved into the main bar fireplace. What interests me is, in all the years we've been there, we have never had a sighting from outside until last year I was contacted by a lady. In 1977, she was sat in the back of her parents' car on the old road outside the inn. And she said, Mummy, Daddy, why is that man sat on the wall in those weird clothes and everyone's ignoring him? So that is the only sighting I can find after 1911 of Outside on the Wall. And it was so vivid, she still remembers it to this day. Now, sometimes it's contributed to as a 
sailor, smuggler, traveler, etc. So we've done experiments with when the guests come out, we, you know, we try to have information. Now, that is speculative because we cannot say this is 100% correct. So we'll say one time, you know, were you knifed? Were you shot? Were you hung? And we've had all different variations of the same thing. Also, the age. Some reports of late 1700s, some reports of early 1800s. Because we know that Francis Bradham as XC Munt was there 1861, to my thinking, I would say there's associations with seamen from the first John Broad right through, so you're talking 60, 70 years. To me, it would be in that time period because of the clothing. Now, interestingly, I've had independent reports of a man with sat in the main bar with black curly hair, sometimes with or without a black beard, sometimes with or without a tricorn hat, a white frilly blouse of the late 18, uh, 1700s, uh, black breeches and high length boots. I've had two independent reports from 2016, 2018 of the same character stood outside room five, just looking down solid, solid as anything. The one in the bar was witnessed by a friend of mine, totally rational for a split second. She looked to her right. She said it wasn't that she saw someone. It was he had his elbow on the table. He had his hand on his cheek and he was looking to say what the hell are you doing that sort of expression with a slight smile like you idiot now is that jack or is it one of the broads or someone else and this is where you have to be careful not to put your own stamp and say oh that's jack we don't know because a short, for, uh, you know, James Broad, he could have been called Jack for all we know. Interestingly is why we don't get so many reports of outside. When we first came, we were expecting the reports of the um, wagon and horses. We've, we've had nothing of the wagon, but we have had recent reports of horses at midnight on outside, but what most people don't realize, the cobbles didn't come up to the 1950s. There would have been just gravel. Yeah. The other thing that interests me is when we look at the, the tack room and let me think. So when we look at the museum now, when Mr. Gross was there in the 1950s as a tenant manager, tenant landlord, his daughter sent me pictures and there's his big Daimler in the garage, but he also still kept hunter's horses because he was ex Coldstream uh, guards. The other thing that interests me about this Jack is we call him Jack. Where did the name come from? I can't find from where it started. Though we do have reports going back to from the Ghost Club. 
um, 1990s. But in the 1950s, the only paranormal reports was of a spirit, a ghost, folding up people's clothes in the bedroom and putting it neatly on the bed. And the guests would come down and say to Mrs. Gross, who's been in our room overnight and tied it up? So why do certain things stop and other things start? Or is that the original halting? And we know in the 1950s, a man in a green cape walked past um, some barmaids when it was shut because there was a private luncheon and walked out through the snug, which was now reception then would have been towards the you know the cow shed that's that's the earliest ones i have but mm -hmm. i was so lucky to interview the, the lady that was born there in 1955 because without that we wouldn't have this information of a pet pig walking around the bar and her mother hated the inn when evening would come because of it creeped her out some interesting things there. We have the name Jack for this apparition who may or may not be linked with this story of the murdered patron. And these sightings of someone with curly hair who appears to be a full-bodied apparition appearing inside the inn and possibly even interacting with people on some level. I'm also intrigued by this idea that the early stories in the 1950s only describe some kind of very tidy spirit, or someone who's still going about their work either as a maid or a servant. And then there's this figure in a green cape, which is a story I've certainly never encountered before. It does make you start to wonder, how much does folklore evolve over time? And in this instance, a relatively short period of time. After all, we're only talking maybe 70 years, give or take. But there's no mention of any paranormal reports before that, unless it's lost in time. That's interesting. You're, you're hinting at the sort of the, the evolution of this sort of... Um, haunted folklore over time and what's really interesting about the comment that your your friend made about this this chap sort of um this uh, almost acknowledgement of someone that this idea that the um a potential spirit might be able to interact with someone in the present day and there's this sort of blurring of of timelines and somewhere that's a fascinating one but it's it's interesting that the 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 name Jack is interesting because it's one that it's it's quite a common one that crops up in lots of different you hear like stories of highwaymen or smugglers or yeah. it's often a Jack or a or even pirates or whatever it's um it's one that crops up but also the 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 description often matches if like if you were to conjure up if someone said to you there's a story of a highwayman that's kind of the image you you would pick but it's also what mm. are they wearing you kind of, okay it's basically what adam ant's wearing kind that's of it thing. yeah um almost this sort of like dick whittington type outfit um that it's almost fits a certain trope but where does that come from is that a fairly modern folklore because there's another thing that i've i've heard stories of but i again i'd be intrigued to see what your thoughts are of and i'm wondering again whether it's sprung it's post Jamaica in as a novel, 
um, stories of um, voices that are heard supposedly talking in what people think might be Cornish, along Cornish, with yeah. the sound of, of horses or wagons or whatever outside. Has, has that ever been corroborated? Has there ever been any stories of that? Or is that again? Um, the, the Ghost Club, when they interviewed the manager, far as I'm aware, that was so in 1998 and 2000, that was common we've heard nothing since and what interests me is do we change the ghosts there do we fit them to what we expect a ghost to be now why is there in the last four years a u.s ceremony been spotted do some ghosts run out of batteries and disappear or move on or new ones take their place? Or if we have free will in life, we have free will in death. And, you know, the man with sat at the bar, was he just passing through? You know, this is what fascinates me. And also our eyes and our brain trick us all the time. So someone will say, well, I've seen this. And I did, a, I did a very interesting experiment years ago. I was sat with some investigators in a circle in a hotel in Somerset. And I sat there and it was very naughty of me. I said, um, can anyone smell old man's wheeze? Really potent. Two people said yes. Not that they were just saying it. They convinced themselves they could smell that smell. Two weeks later, I told them I made it up. So some people are very easy to convince. So when someone says, can you see that down there? Is that a figure? You might get one or two say, yeah, I can see it because they're convinced I can see it. So then suddenly that becomes a reported sighting. So when I interview people, I'm really careful in listening to how they explain it what is their belief system? You know, that one I think is, is true, truly genuine. There was a lady, Owen, who worked in the museum for 20 odd years. And the only report she ever gave me was um, a couple came in with two little boys. So they paid their money, they went round. As they came out, she said, oh, you got one of your boys missing. They said, we only came in with one. To me, that is natural. It's truthful. And she can't explain it. She said, it was a boy. She can't remember what he looked like, what he wore. But we know a boy is seen all around the inn. Then there was a lady who was moving down to Cornwall. And they decided to come down the night before, stay at the Jamaica Inn. So that was December 2019. She's in the bar. It's about quarter past nine it's her and one other couple she wasn't drinking alcohol she's um probably my age might be a couple of years older and she saw a girl came about 15 16 and she wore a long dress and she naturally assumed oh someone's dressed up and it was um victorian high neck corner long sleeve she had a, a mop hat because she thought it was earlier. I said, no, the dress she's wearing is, is late Victorian. Um, 
and a dirty apron and she had a tray. So as she came up to this lady, she naturally picked her empty glass up to give to her. As she went to give her the glass, it disappeared. And she said she stood there with the glass still out, looked at her husband and said, I think I've just seen a ghost. Now, that is genuine. Then you get some reports, I think, are more mass hysteria. So I acknowledge them. I either take a mental note or I write them down, but I don't say nothing because I want to see if other people come back. Because if you put too much information out, you'll find that, oh, I, that, that happened to me as well. And you think, hmm, not too sure. Some things I find really interesting here are firstly this evolution of the phenomena, that these stories which are being told develop over time almost as if each generation contributes their own stories and accounts. That's the first time, for instance, that I've heard any mention of a US airman. And I personally find these things interesting because they're not the recurring stories that you encounter in a simple internet search or from a book. And then we have this possible maid or servant in Victorian clothing, which again is a new one on me. And I enjoy stories like this because it's when people are just going about their every day. There's no sense of expectation or anticipation. It's only when the person, in this case, literally disappears in front of you that you begin to question it. I'm always interested in when you, enc um, you encounter ones that you go, that's not written in the book, that you can't find that in a book or you can't Google it. So there's, I wondered a if, modern, um, there's a modern one. One of the staff, I think in the 1980s, saw a man in a green jumper and brown trousers in the upper restaurant, we call it the upper peg, after it was locked. And she went down to say, excuse me, and she walked down there, he was gone. How often do we get a modern dressed ghost? Yeah, I think, yeah, so often, especially because a lot of these stories come from older buildings. So I think we automatically expect someone in in some kind of period dress or something like that but mm. in a way that's that's sometimes more compelling because then it is easy to just kind of go at the time I thought it was just someone some random you know someone who'd yeah um hadn't realized I'd locked up um then it becomes quite compelling because they there is no sense of expectation because they're just going about there every day and it's also the staff uh, you know, getting the information from the staff. Um, when, um, oh God, when was his name used to work there? Jake. Um, when we'd finished a public night, he would go to the kitchen and get me a half a glass of milk. So I was like a couple of cups of tea for bed. And all the lights are off. So he walks through the two bars, turns right in the upper restaurant to go into the kitchen, got the milk as he came out, he heard clearly children giggling. And the giggling children are heard. I mean, we don't get it so much in the gift shop now. They used, they used the staff used to walk in in the mornings, hear giggling, books would be thrown off shelves. Since it's been renovated, it's less. So we have reports there from members of staff going about their work at the inn and at the gift shop. And we also have this account about the boy from the lady working at the Jamaica Inn Museum. 
and that's a particularly interesting one. I have a very short extract here from Nicholas Sly's book, which reads, and I quote, There is anecdotal evidence, which I have unfortunately been unable to verify, that the son of a former landlord disappeared from a child's birthday party that was taking place in the garden in the early part of the 20th century. End quote. So is there a possible link here with these accounts of a boy who's been seen at the museum and around the inn, along with these reports of children seemingly running around laughing and giggling? With such a wide range of different reported sightings and experiences over the years, and with such a wealth of folklore attached to the building, what does Corrine make of it all? I mean, in your opinion... Um, if someone was to simply ask outright, do you think Jamaica Inn is a, a haunted place? How would you go about answering that? I would say it's generally, it's completely truthful. It's haunted, but don't read what you see on the internet. The real hauntings are totally different. Well, there you have it. I'll leave it up to you whether you think that Jamaica Inn is haunted or not. But if you haven't visited, then I recommend going and taking a look around the inn for yourselves. Whether it's simply to go and grab a pint, or perhaps you want to brave staying the night there yourself, or even go along to one of their paranormal evenings. Now, whether or not there is any truth to the alleged hauntings, there is something about the place that continues to fascinate. There's a definite atmosphere to the place. And that could be down to a combination of things. Whether it's the very nature of the building itself, with its thick stone walls and its old beams, or the fact that it's high up on the moor, in the middle of a very beautiful but very bleak and rugged landscape. It's the perfect setting for tales of ghosts and the paranormal. Then there's The Legacy Left by Daphne du Maurier, her novel, Jamaica Inn, certainly had an impact on me as a teenager and the way that I've perceived Bobmin Moore and the inn ever since. It's hard to say for certain whether smuggling went on there, but given how widespread it was and given the inn's location, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Having listened to Corrine, something that stayed with me is this notion of how these stories and accounts of things like ghosts can develop over time. Is it simply the case that we concoct new stories as a way of continuing a tradition? Or is it a case of what they call Chinese whispers, where things just change and alter in the retelling? Do we make the stories fit to what our generation's perception of a haunting should be? Or is it the case that the inn is offering a glimpse into events that took place long ago? that sometimes those events can be in some way replayed, and that sometimes those people can even engage or interact with us in some way. Whatever your thoughts, it's a place that continues to fascinate me, and I plan to continue my research into the inn's past to see if that can reveal any more clues. So I'll keep you updated. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. I'd like to thank Corrine Besant and everyone at Jamaica Inn. And as usual, if you'd like to find out more, you can check out the reading list for this series. The Pisky Trap is presented by me, 
Keith Wallace, with music by Elizabeth Westcott and artwork by Caris Harrington. <laughs>